Okay, this is the interview I did with April Dunford. She's a marketing executive here in Toronto. Right now, she works as a consultant and previously she held a number of roles. She was a CEO, she was a VP of marketing, VP of sales, and she launched a number of products. She's got a lot of experience specifically in market positioning. So we are talking about that. We are talking about SaaS. Um, April gives some pretty cool insights. So I hope you guys like it. If you do like the interview, make sure to like it and subscribe, leave a comment uh, and uh, wherever you are, iTunes, Stitcher or Apple Pod Apple Podcasts. And uh, we'd love to hear from you guys and check out the interview. <music> excited to have you on the show. Super happy to be on the show. Well, now I wanted to ask you, you launched 16 products, you held a number of roles, you were a CEO, you were a COO, yep. you were a VP of marketing, VP of sales, super long career. Why don't you talk about your career journey? Where did you start? How did you end up being in marketing in the first place? And we'll, uh, we'll go from here. Yeah, you know, I never, so at the beginning, I had no intention of getting into marketing. So I'm a bit of an accidental marketer that way. So I was studying systems design and engineering at the University of Waterloo. And when I graduated, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I ended up getting a job with a startup. And this was ages ago when nobody worked at a startup, but my friend worked at a startup and she got me a job there. And the requirements for the job were that you needed to know how to program SQL, which I did, and you needed to be not afraid of public speaking, and I was not afraid of public speaking. And so this job was in the marketing department, and I was a, a technical evangelist was the job. And that company ended up getting acquired. My boss left the company, and I ended up being the head of the marketing group, even though I had Very never cool. taken a marketing class. I knew nothing about marketing. But uh, one of the things I did learn in engineering is you get this really big ego. And I kept thinking, well, how hard can it be? You know, I'll just figure this out. This can't be worse than mechanics of deformable solids. This will be fine. <laughs> so... Uh, and then that worked out pretty good. And, and I kind of self-studied marketing as I went along because I was worried that there was stuff I didn't know. And so I read a lot of books. I took a bunch of classes. Um, and then I just kind of figured it out as I went along and it was fun. And I thought that work was good. And after that, I just did that. Like, so after I left that company, I went to another startup, uh, running marketing. And then I did another startup running marketing and these startups kept getting acquired. I'd stick around at the big company for a couple of years. Then I go to the next one. Now I've kind of transitioned into consulting, but I still work with startups on marketing things. So yeah, that's how I got here. It's a bit of a weird one. I'd, I'm not sure that's how you would do it today if you wanted to do this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do you define, so you have it. You had experience in a startup, experience in a in a larger company when they were acquired. Yeah. But you you do prefer working in a startup. Yeah, you know, I learned a lot at the bigger companies. Like, I think it's fun to work at both, to tell you the truth. But they're fun in different ways. Um, I think the startup matches my personality more. Um, but I did, you know, I worked at IBM twice, actually. And I learned so much when I was there about how you would do stuff at scale. But a lot of what you do, like as a marketer in a big, big company is extremely specialized. So you can afford to have 
a team full of specialists that just focused on one tiny thing. Whereas at a startup, you know, most of the folks in marketing are touching a lot of different things at once. And so the roles tend to be broader and you can get your hands into stuff that you're not necessarily an expert at. Whereas I found the big company jobs felt a lot more like, um, I kept calling it knob turning. Like it was just, we're just tuning things, you know, if we could squeeze 1% more out of what we were already doing, that was considered a big win. Whereas at the startup, I felt like we could do really creative things and move the needle big, like way more than a percent here or a percent there. And I thought that was a lot more exciting. So I was more into that. But I don't regret the stints that I did at the bigger companies as well, because I felt like a lot of times at startups, we were... um, I guess cutting corners on things, but we didn't even know the corners we were cutting. And so it was neat to look at, ooh, if you had all the budget and all the people and all the stuff, this is how you would do it perfectly. And then you go back to the startup and say, okay, now divide that budget by a million (laughs) and and, and subtract all the people and do the same thing. Uh, It was kind of interesting to know what it should look like so that when you're cheating, you at least know where you're shaving things off and you're doing it in a smart way. No, absolutely. That's such a, such a cool experience to have. You known as our position wizard, uh, but where where yeah. got it? Where did it get all started? You know, how did you? What was the moment that you identified position is my thing? Was it after you decided to transition to consultant? Well, you know what's funny about positioning. So, at the how I started thinking about positioning as my thing is um, at one point probably six or seven years ago, somebody, I was having a conversation about positioning and I was saying how hard it is. And it's one of these fundamental things that you have to do when you're a senior marketing person at a startup and you almost always have to reposition your product. And the person I was talking to said, you should give a class on this at the, at the startup incubator we were both uh, mentoring with. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. So I talked to the the incubator and they said, oh yeah, come in and do this class. And so I put this class together and I thought it was genius. And I went in there and nobody understand a freaking thing I was talking about. Like it was so bad. It was like the worst thing. It was like the big bomb. And that's when I realized, gosh, not only is this thing really, really hard, it's almost impossible to teach. And so in the back of my mind, I kept thinking from that point forward, whenever I was doing positioning, I was thinking, is this repeatable? Is like, is this a set of steps? If I had to teach this to somebody, would I do step one, step two, step three? And so now as a consultant, like the last two years, I've been really obsessed with how do you actually build the methodology? Does it work for every case? Does it only work for some cases? What are the prerequisites? Uh, How do you know when you've got it right? How do you test it? And, uh, and at this point, I feel like I've got it, but it took me a long time. It's kind of surprising for something that's so fundamental that that didn't exist already, that it still kind of blows my mind that I, I don't think there's a very good positioning methodology out there that people can follow. Now I think I have one. There's a lot of caveats on it. Like I've only tested it with tech startups of a certain stage and, you know, yeah, there's a lot of if, if, if in it but if you meet the criteria i you know i think i can teach you how to do positioning if you look like this but still it kind of blows my mind that that didn't already exist well it you, it goes so much further than just a regular position statement which we will touch on because God. when i was yeah, i hate that thing I, <laughs> I was in college we had to 
do position statement and we were solving this Harvard Business School cases. Now yeah. we did it. Great. And what do we do after? Did you study the Amazon one? Did they give you the Amazon one as the example? No, That's the one I did. It was no, I think class, it was right? the a, first position class. Yeah, I, I think it was New York Times. It was like an, the the <laughs> right. the later cases, but it just didn't make sense. Like it it looked cool. We could read it, and then we sort of talked about other stuff. But it we never went through how does that plug into the actual strategy right so we never, right and, you and just then, put it in the drawer you never exactly, look at it again exactly. that's a, that's how you know it's useless so yeah the, the positioning statement it, it's not a methodology it's it's a way of writing down the positioning that you already have in your head which may or may not be correct and so if you look at the positioning statement and it's like this fill in the blanks thing and so you say this is the market i'm in this is my differentiator this is my value this is my competition but it, it doesn't it, I've talked to people about this, and when I learned it, there was no methodology behind how you answered what should go in the blank. It, it was kind of, it was, the expectation was that it was obvious. So the first thing that popped into your head, you would write that down. Yes. And so, you, you know, which is wrong. Like, I can take almost any product you give me and position it in multiple different markets. How do I know I've picked the right one? And it's not necessarily the most obvious one that is the best one. And so that's part of the reason why the positioning statement is stupid. Like, first, I think it's stupid because you just write it down and then nobody ever uses it. Secondly, I think it's potentially harmful because it tricks you into thinking there's only one way to position a product and it's the most obvious thing that pops into your head. You write it down, you're done, you're good. Don't think about it again. Um, And then the third thing is that this don't think about it again part, which is the market's always changing, your product's changing, the environment's changing, the attitude of customers is changing, your positioning needs to change too. So it doesn't give you any clue that, you know, when should I revisit this thing? And and when do we know it's gone bad? And is there a test for good positioning versus bad positioning? None of those things. And so I think the positioning statement, it's amazing to me that even now people are taught that's how you do it. And it's a terrible way to do it. Like, it's just, it's laughably bad if you ever stop to think about it, but no one stops to think about it because everybody just says, oh, positioning, I'll just write this down, put it in the drawer, never think about it again. And that's generally how we treat positioning. It's a thing we don't think about. And yet, it's the input to everything. It's the input to all your campaigns. It's the input to all your sales programs. It's the input to literally everything you do in marketing is built on the foundation of your positioning. If your positioning is crap, then everything where you're inputting that positioning is going to be crap. And yet we don't think about it. It's crazy. Absolutely. So what are the questions? Maybe it's a, it's a long topic. It's, it obviously goes super in-depth. But are there like maybe two or three questions that founders need to ask themselves so they can at least start thinking about it in the right way? Yeah. So there, there's a handful of things. So one, you know, the, the obvious symptoms that you might have a positioning problem usually show up um, early in your sales process. So you'll see this kind of slowness at the beginning of your funnel. And and you can suss that out by looking to see, are your customers confused about what the heck you are? So, and the symptoms of that are, 
your customers will compare you to other solutions that you would not consider to be your competition at all. Or you're doing a first meeting with a customer and they're like, yeah, you know, I just don't get it. <laughs> or they'll say, pitch me again. What is it again? Or they'll say, so you're like a CRM. And you're like, oh God, no, we're not a CRM. We're nothing like that. So yeah. there'll be this confusion. Um, sometimes what you'll get where the customer will say, no, 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 I get it. And then later in your funnel, they'll be like, no, I didn't get it. Actually, I'm dumping you now. So you get these people who abruptly drop out of your funnel so once, common. once the light does come on that they're like, oh, gosh, I thought you were this thing. And no, you're not. Um, it, it, so that's the first thing is you have these these signals that your prospects don't see your product in the way that you see your product. And it's that disconnect, which is the symptom of weak positioning. The next thing is... A lot of that has to do with the market that you are positioning yourself in. So if I say, for example, uh, you know, I've got this product and it's email. The minute you say email, you've triggered this set of assumptions in the mind of your customer. And the big one is, what are the competitive comparables? So if I say I'm email, you're going to go, oh, you're like Gmail. Gmail so yeah. how are you better than Gmail? And if you're not better than Gmail or you you don't do all the things that Gmail does, then you'll spend the rest of that conversation saying, no, 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 we're not email like that. We're special email. And you'll go, I don't know. G email is Gmail. And, where, where am I push notifications? Right. And so, so this putting yourself in a market category is actually really, really powerful either for you or against you. Like it works for you if all the assumptions that it triggers are true, but it works against you if they are false. But most of the time we don't actually think about that market category. We'll say, well, you know, when the founders built this thing, what they were trying to build was email and we built email and here it is, it's email. But in fact, you know, you've been working with customers, you've been adding features, you've been taking things away. And maybe what you've got now is chat, or maybe what you've got now is team collaboration or something else. But you, you're still thinking about it as email. And because, you know, you were taught to do a positioning statement, you just write it right. down. We are email on like whatever. And, but meanwhile, your customer's looking at it going, where's the calendar? And you're saying, we don't have a calendar. And they're like, well, that's not email, dummy. And you know, in this, again, you have this disconnect. So I don't know. I think this market category thing is something that you really have to stop and say, you know, we've been calling ourselves CRM. We've been calling ourselves email. We've been calling ourselves a database. Is that actually what we are? And what do customers, if we didn't prompt them, what would they compare us to? And so if you have a happy customer right now, you can go to your happy customer and say, look, like if we all got hit by a bus tomorrow and our thing didn't exist anymore, what would you use? And Great see question. what the comparable is, because the comparable might not be what you think it is. And if the comparable is something completely different, then maybe you could take your product and put it in a completely different context and it would be way easier to understand. No, absolutely. No, totally agree. You uh, made a great example. I think it was on, on your Twitter, uh, which I liked. You said, uh, most entrepreneurs I meet, the, they say that they have product market fit. Uh, what they really did, they have simply <laughs> sold some stuff to folks they lo that love it. They can't tell me the the characteristics of a prospect. I what hate aspects? Product market fit as a concept. Yeah. Like I, you know what? I get I get why people. You know who likes product market fit? Investors like product market <laughs> fit. You know why? Because they want there to be a magic spot 
where you should put money in. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I just don't believe that we know when the magic moment happens. But yeah, most people yeah. will say, because it's really hard to measure product market fit. Um, and as entrepreneurs, we are optimistic people. Right. I think we like to think we have product market fit way before we do, because we don't know whether we're there or not. And there's no hard and fast way to really measure, are we there yet? And we're optimistic people. We have to be, otherwise we would go home and cry every night. And so, you know, so the minute we've, we've sold three or four customers and those customers are really happy, we think, well, that, 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 that must be product market fit, right? The problem is that, Three or four customers is not a market. So if I was to say, okay, what are the characteristics of a customer that makes them a really, really good fit for your product? Most of the time, an entrepreneur cannot answer that question for Mm. me at the moment when they say they have product market fit, which says to me, you got product fit, you, you know your product, and you've got some customers that are happy, but you don't know whether those customers are even all in the same market. So it's right. the market piece that's problematic for me Absolutely. in public market. Yeah, I've market heard this point. Uh, I think it was David Cancel, the CEO of Drift. He made mm-hmm. a comment which he said, I don't believe in product market fit. I look at the problem market fit because when you have a you have an imperfect product, but you're solving a big problem, yeah. this is even more important because you'll always be able to come up with something. Yeah, well, I mean, you could say that, but if the problem is the same for a very small company and a very big company, you you probably do not have the sales and marketing reach to get both of those. So I would argue you might you could have problem product fit, but not product market fit because you still don't know how you're going to get those guys. Like what you really want is you want to understand how can I identify a really good fit customer from the outside? So if I had to make a list of a hundred customers for Mm -hmm. my salespeople to go call tomorrow, what are the characteristics? And it can't just be small, medium businesses. Like it has to be like, you know, small businesses that, that have this and this and this, they've invested in this. They have this kind of business model. They sell to these kinds of people. Their price point is this, like, it's usually a, a long laundry list of characteristics that makes them a particularly good fit for your product. Um, and it's not just markets, the company size right. or firmographics yeah. is what we call that, right? It's usually way beyond firmographics. Um, so I don't know, like the problem is part of it, mm-hmm. but it, it's usually more than actually just that. Like if I think about... Um, the products that I've worked on where we've got really, really, we've got a really good definition of our best fit customer. Um, It was a lot more than just solving the problem. Like I worked on this database once where, you know, the problem we solved is if you had to do an analytic query on a mountain of data really, really fast, uh, we could do that for you. And we figured everybody that did analytic queries on a mountain of data would want to do that really fast, wouldn't they? And when Mm -hmm. we went to talk to them, they all wanted to do it really fast. But for some folks, they really, really, really had to do it fast. Um, And and for other folks, it was just kind of a nice to have. Um, and, And when we scratched at it more, it was like, no, if you had to do a query on a mountain of data to answer a customer's question while they were on the phone that was actually the problem we had Mm -hmm. to solve which 
if it was something where you could get away with running the query once every couple of days, then it was okay. You didn't yeah. have to have it right now. And so, you know, this getting this really tight. And then when we looked at that and said, well, who actually does that? It turned out our target market was ad tech companies. Like it literally narrowed down that yeah. narrow. And then it was like, oh God, we, we have product market fit in a product that's way too, in a market that's way too tiny mm-hmm. to support our business. And that's a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, are, we didn't arrive. Right? Uh, but at the beginning, and we actually raised money before we came to that conclusion with investors yeah. by saying, oh, look, anybody that has terabytes and terabytes of data that needs to do an analytic query, blah, 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 is going to need our stuff. And so, it, you know, we had a handful of customers and those customers were mm-hmm. happy. It looked like we had, quote, unquote, product market fit. But in fact, we didn't have a clue. Yeah. So you uh, you did a talk uh, at LA Product Conference in 2017. You gave a great example of IBM, and um, you talked about um, you you gave an example of creating a market category where yeah. um, you said, well, we had a crappy product with IBM, and then yeah. you were able to create a market category that didn't exist. And you yeah. said, oh, it only works with big guys, and if you're a small startup startup, don't do it. So maybe you can okay, briefly well, maybe not never like I, I think there yeah. are examples of of or by and large of startups, but yeah, I think it's the hardest thing you can do. Let's put it that way. It's mm-hmm. the riskiest thing you can do. Most of the startups, like, and I use startup very loosely here, like most of the companies that I see doing this category creation thing did not start out as category creators. So at the beginning, they were essentially a niche play in an existing category. And only when they got big, like, and big by, I mean, like 100 million revenue big, mm-hmm. Were they big enough to actually say, okay, you know what, we're going we're gonna to redraw the lines around a category. We're going to create an entirely new category, and this is how we're going to do it. When you're really small, that's super difficult to do because you have to convince the market that the category exi- deserves to exist. So you have to convince right. people that there's a problem, like you're, you're more selling the problem than the solution at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so it means you need a lot of runway, you need really patient investors, you need a big marketing budget to go and evangelize this problem. And when you're 100 million revenue, you right. can do that. But when you're zero revenue... <laughs> <laughs> doesn't sound like something. It's, it's kind of suicide. I don't know why you would want to do that. And most of the examples we see of that, you know, where people say, oh, this company created a, a category. They did, but they didn't do it until they were big. And if you look at how they managed to survive to get to 100 million, they started out as a niche thing, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. it's way easier to say, look, the category exists already. I don't have to teach you that. I don't have to teach you what coke is i don't have to teach you what crm is i don't have to teach you what email is and i'm just doing crm for investment banks or you know email for lawyers or you know a little nichey thing inside there is really easy to carve off a piece and then defend your patch and then gradually expand out until you're big enough and strong enough to take on the leader so i don't you know i don't and a lot of what, again, a lot of what people call category creation is either the category is created after the company got really big, or it's not category creation at all. Like right now, I don't know. It's like there's a thing going on. Everybody wants to say they're creating a category, but a lot of times I hear what they're saying and what it sounds like is they're either niching an existing category or they're... They've, they've come up with a marketing tagline. They're still operating in an existing category, but they've, they've got this marketing tagline, which they think 
makes it a category or something. I don't know. Like well, maybe I think we're confused on what a category is. Disruption sounds so cool. Like it's that's a that's a news that's a news advertisement you can put anywhere and it's like awesome. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, if you're selling to businesses, like my like my background's all B two B. If you're selling to businesses. It's easier to go in and take money that's already been allocated to a budget than to say, hey, you know what? There's a new line item in your budget that you never thought about before. And, and, you know, if I'm sitting there with the budget going, okay, well, what if this list of things on my budget needs to go away? And you're saying, oh, none of those because we don't replace any of those. Well, that's hard to get money out of people if that's what you're supposed to be doing. 100%. Totally. You, um, April, you had an article, you had a great article, it was, I think, on Medium, where you talked about four stages of sale, of selling, where the founders are, what founders are trying to do, they're tempted to to, ta- to put the sales process into the hands of salespeople, hire salespeople, instead of selling, selling it themselves and understanding mm. more of their customers. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Why are they why doesn't why is why is it not worth doing it too early for a founder? Uh, yeah, you know the, the the pattern that I see sometimes, and not with all founders for sure, but but you do see a lot of founders bringing on a salesperson before there is a defined sales process, and I think it's really hard particularly if the salesperson is not super senior, it's hard for a salesperson to come in, hit the ground running and define that sales process. It's it's way easier if the founder has sold a bunch of stuff themselves and can say, look, this is how you qualify a deal. This is how you, this is how you move a deal along the pipeline. This is how you close a deal. Mm-hmm. Then you can train a salesperson. A lot of times I think the founder has been selling stuff on their own. They're not really thinking about sales process because that's not yeah. how they think but they are doing a sales process mm-hmm. uh, and then they but they think well heck I'm not a salesperson I'm going to hire a salesperson and they're going to come in and teach me what a good <laughs> sales process should be right. uh, and and that's not actually how it works and that's just kind of a I don't know it's just a bit of a disconnect I right. think sometimes between founder expectations and salesperson expectations. So they'll come in and say, okay, so what's the process? The founder will be like, well, I thought you were going to teach me what the process yeah. is. The salesperson's like, well, I thought you're selling this now. What are you doing? So I think it's better. The founders all end up selling stuff mm-hmm. at the beginning. That's just yeah. natural. But I think you just need to be conscious of at some point you're going to have to teach this to somebody. So, you know, let's be conscious of how do we qualify a deal? How does a deal move along? What, you know, how do we actually get a deal over the line closed? Yeah, don't don't hire too early. Yeah, don't hire too early until you know what you're doing. I like talk about books on this podcast because it's all about personal growth and business growth. What are your favorite business books, maybe books in marketing that you thought were really cool? Yeah, you know, I wish I read more good marketing books. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe good articles that you came across. <laughs> it's funny. Um, you know, the, the, the here's I have this funny opinion, and this is funny coming from me because I'm just about mm-hmm. to put out my own book, but I feel like there's too many books right now. Um, so th- there's this thing right now. It's really easy to self-publish, and a lot of people are doing a book not for the sake of having the book, but they're doing it as kind of a, you know, a big piece of collateral or something to sell their product or their company or something. And so I'm reading a lot of books right now that I don't think they're particularly created to teach me something interestingly. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I wish I had some better books to recommend to you. 
uh, when people come to me a lot, because positioning's my bag, people come to me yeah. a lot and they ask me about good books to read on positioning. And I keep pointing them to these super old books, like the book that you learn positioning on, even now, if you yeah. take a class on positioning, is by these guys, um, Rise and Trout, uh, Positioning the, bot- the Battle for Your Mind. And that was written in 1982. Like, you should <laughs> see my copy of it. It's hilarious. Um, yeah. It's got a guy with big bell bottoms on it, and it looks really psychedelic. Like, it's <laughs> it's like super, super old. Um, but it's still kind of the definitive textbook on positioning. It doesn't tell you how to do it, but it defines it really well. And then it gives you a bunch of examples where they reposition something, um, mainly around messaging and using advertising mm-hmm. as the medium mm-hmm. to reposition it. Um, and then the other book I point people to a lot is... Um, uh, Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm has mm-hmm. a section in there, particularly a bit about bowling alley strategy and having a, a, a lead target market, which is really all about niching out a category, knocking mm-hmm. over a niche in a category, and then spreading to other niches until you're ready to take on the entire category, which I think is as relevant now as it was when he first published it. And then more recently, but again, this is still a super old book, is um, Four Steps to the Epiphany, mm-hmm. which I think if you really want to understand customer discovery as an early stage startup, I don't think there's been anything better. There's been a ton of books touching on customer discovery, including uh, The Lean Startup, but The Lean Startup I don't think makes a lot of sense when mm-hmm. you're ta- thinking about customer discovery without going back and reading Four Steps Epiphany. So I kind of keep pointing people back towards those three books. If you read those three books, you're kind of you're kind of armed and dangerous uh, as a as a senior marketing person. And we're gonna link it to uh, all below. Yeah, and then I and then you know if you want to get and then beyond that you start getting into things that are, you know, really niche right? Like if I really, really want to understand content or SEO or advertising or whatever, a lot of the things I would refer you to are more stuff online, not yeah. really books, but people are writing, you know, giant, gorgeous, beautiful, deep content online mm-hmm. where you can mm-hmm. go and learn all that tactical stuff. But it's surprising how little gets written about the big picture strategic, deep mm-hmm. thinking stuff on the marketing side. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, well, speaking of uh, strategic stuff, the, your book called Obviously Awesome is coming out at some point. When can we expect some it? Some point, yeah. No, yeah, it's it's coming. Uh, middle of May is is what it looks like right now. I'm. It's in the. It's we're done edits, so it's Amazing. it's yeah. It's getting it's getting there. So the idea of this book is. Uh, again, I want it to be sort of a process book. So it's the idea that if you come to me and say, April, I want to do positioning, but I don't know how, I should be able to slide this book across the table at you and say, read this, man. (laughs) I got you covered. (laughs) And it's like, you know, 10 steps. This is how you're going to do it. Um, And again, it's it's, maybe doesn't work for everybody, but if you're uh, a tech company, uh, particularly a startup, but if you're a company that's got something new and you think you got a positioning problem, it should be the book to solve that problem. I hope so. Anyway, we'll see. Um, yeah. And then this thing is going to come out and I'm doing a lot of public speaking this year. And, um, and then, you know, maybe next year I'll never think about positioning again. We'll see. Like this might. <laughs> we'll see what the, world, what the world says. Maybe I'm done after this. Maybe I'm like, no, you're good. Just read that thing. You're good. Um, 
I do consulting now, and, and the idea is that if you want somebody from the outside to help you, uh, and I do think there is value in having an outside person help you with your positioning just as a fresh set of eyes on stuff. I don't think it's always necessary, but I think sometimes it's helpful. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of what I'm doing right now as a consultant is kind of workshops and workshopping through this particular process and helping teams with that. But uh, my hope is that, you know, if you don't want my help or can't afford my help or, you, you know, whatever, um, you could do it on your own with the book. That's the idea. April, before I, last, I ask my last question, where is everybody can find you online? Uh, AprilDunford.com, or I'm April Dunford on every on all the social media. Although I don't know, I don't do that much social media anymore. Twitter, well, you're big you can on find Twitter. me on Twitter. Yeah, you're yeah. big on Twitter. Yeah, oh yeah, I tweet like once a day. I love your gifts, though. Stupid. <laughs> so good. You're like so on point. I'm you a know big what? Fan. I decided like about a, I, I gave up on Twitter a few years ago, and then a couple years ago, I decided no, I'm gonna. I'm going to go back on Twitter, but I committed myself to being a source of joy on Twitter. So that, that is my, that's my motto on Twitter. April's Twitter is a source of joy. And so I don't get, I try not to get into fights with anybody on anything. I try not to tweet negative things at people. I'm like, come here for the cat gifts and stupid jokes. Great and engagement though. Occasionally. Yeah. Right. And occasionally, you know, like the closest I get to sort of ranty things are like, the worst part about Twitter is you rant about something, it gets a lot of engagement, which I think encourages exactly what I'm exactly. trying to not do. But like the closest I get is like, I don't think product market fits a thing. And then a thousand people are like, yes, it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's worth checking out. It's so good. Like, I was I was laughing. I think I was doing, I was, I was going through your feed and there were like three or four gifts that were just so, so good. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. You, yeah, yeah. Follow me on Twitter. It's yeah, totally. a, it's a source of joy. April Danford on Twitter. <laughs> You're not gonna regret it. Yeah, you won't regret it. It'll be fine. Yeah, and so when the book comes out, I'll warn you there. But um, but if you go to my website. I have a, there's a page for the book. And if you give me your email address, which you should not be scared to do because I'm super lazy at emailing the people on my email list. But if you give me your email address about once every three months or something, I send an email out and it's usually good. So the next one I'm going to send out, I'm going to give you free stuff if you pre-order the book. <laughs> well, there you go. Go on aprildumpfer.com. There will be free stuff. <laughs> and and put in your email. Yeah, April. put in your email. And go to the book page. Put in your email and I will be offering up the free stuff. I got a bunch of templates and a bunch of stuff that I use with my consulting clients. And so I'm going to throw all that stuff out and anybody who pre-orders when the book goes up for pre-order you'll get some free stuff i don't know what exactly yet but a bunch of my stuff well i mean i think everybody can get a sense of the value if you just check if they check out their your articles which are phenomenal on your website or on your medium i don't post very much i haven't lately because i've been so deep into book edits but i have i am have a bunch of blog posts coming in the next couple of weeks because i've finally been able to get back to Amazing. Well, April, it was a pleasure, and thank you so much for a deep dive okay. and uh, for uh, for the chat. Okay. Well, this was fun. Well, thanks so much for having me.